0: This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise.
1: In case you haven't noticed, digital assets, including cryptocurrencies, have experienced explosive growth in recent years. Last November, Time Magazine reported that the cryptocurrency market is now worth more than $3 trillion. That's up from $14 billion just five years ago. Surveys indicate that around 40 million Americans have invested in, traded, or used cryptocurrencies. Still, the crypto regulatory environment remains a bit murky. On March 9th, President Biden signed an executive order that calls on federal agencies to take a unified approach to regulation and oversight of digital assets. According to CNBC, the long-awaited directive has had the crypto industry on edge, not least due to growing regulatory concern around the world surrounding the nascent digital asset market. We want to unpack President Biden's executive order and figure out what it could mean for the crypto industry. And we have two experts on board to help us do that Carla Caravo, who is the chief legal officer of Coinlist, and Michael Liftek, a securities regulatory and enforcement partner at the law firm Quinn Emanuel. Join the crypto conversation today on Insecurities.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be
1: following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you again, Chris. You know, I love it when our episodes address hot topics that are playing out in the real world in real time. Like the topic we're talking about today. Fresh and wonky. Fresh and wonky. Absolutely right. Uh, It is a timely topic for our listeners. We are going to be talking crypto. Of course, this isn't the first time we've talked about cryptocurrencies, digital assets, distributed ledger Mm -hmm. technology, and initial coin offerings here on Insecurities. Listeners, you can always go back to episode 15 to hear our conversation with Teresa Goody Guillen, Uzman Sheikh, and Jason Somensato about everything from DLT to ICOs. But the digital assets and crypto space continues to be a hot topic, and the executive order on ensuring responsible development of digital assets, which is just a couple weeks old now, is certainly one of the most talked about developments in the space. I'm excited to have Carla and Michael on the show today to help us make sense of the order and peek around the corner with us to get a sense of what might be coming down the road. The big question we want to answer today... Will the executive order on ensuring responsible development of digital assets bring order to the regulatory chaos for crypto? Uh, we got a lot to cover. So, Chris, why don't we get started with some introductions?
2: Yes, I'm proud to give a little bit of background on it. Carla Caravo, who is the chief legal officer of Coinlist a platform that offers tools for early adopters to trade and earn digital assets, which we'll be discussing in a little bit more detail as the episode unfolds. Carla focuses on leading legal strategy in emerging technology industries. In addition to her role at CoinList, Carla is the board president of Biotech Partners, a nonprofit focused on facilitating biotech careers for underserved youth in the Bay Area. Carla also serves as an advisor to Compliance.ai, a regtech platform and is director and advisor to Caplight Technologies, Inc., an alternative assets platform specializing in derivatives. And in a previous life, Carla served as senior counsel at the SEC, where she worked in a number of roles, including as a top government affairs aide to former SEC chair Mary Jo White. Carla, welcome to Insecurities.
3: It's a pleasure to be here. I love the name of your podcast and and it's great to be working with with Michael again.
1: (laughs) Thanks. And that's a a perfect segue. I am uh, very pleased to introduce uh, my friend and colleague at Quinn Emanuel, Michael Liftyk. Uh, Michael is a co-chair of our SEC enforcement practice, where he advises public and private companies, senior executives, financial services, firms, and funds in government and internal investigations, regulatory enforcement, defense, and securities litigation. Michael also devotes a significant portion of his practice to the digital assets space, where he advises exchanges, issuers, and other developers in SEC inquiries, and above-the-fold crypto litigation. Before joining Quinn Emanuel, Michael served as the Deputy Chief of Staff of the SEC and as a Senior Legal Advisor to Chair Mary Jo White. He also served as the SEC's representative on the Financial Stability Oversight Council, the FSOC, which we're going to hear a little bit about later. Uh, Michael also led the SEC's initial efforts to identify areas where fintech intersects with securities regulation, and he drove the SEC's very first FinTech Forum. Michael, it's good to have you on the show. Welcome.
4: Thanks, Kurt. Thanks, Chris, for having me. And uh Carla, agree, nice to be uh working with you
1: again. All right. So that's pretty high-level background for both of you, but we we want to hear a little bit more about your experience. Uh Carla, let's start with you. Tell us about some of your experience in in the fintech space and some of these leading technologies, and and tell us a little bit about CoinList.
3: Yeah, well, well, maybe I'll just start with CoinLess because it's got such an interesting, interesting story. Um, you know, we were born of this idea from Protocol Labs um, they are the project team that started Filecoin. And so for those that don't really follow this space, Filecoin is kind of a storage provider using distributed ledger technology. Um, and so Protocol Labs came to AngelList and AngelList um, is kind of the storied institution here in Silicon Valley that brought together entrepreneurs and investors and really, I think, created this environment where Silicon Valley exploded and, and they had a, a big hand in um, like, regulation, and crowdfunding and the JOBS Act and that kind of thing. So anyway, Protocol Labs comes to AngelList and says, hey, we want to do a compliant offering of our token. And that's how the idea for CoinList was born, was like, how do we do this compliant offering um, of a saft under reg D and so Coinlist did the KYC they ran all the AML checks and there was a real need in the industry at the time and still continuing for good actors in this space people that wanted to do the right things in a compliant way and so people just started gravitating towards Coinlist for that and and we've just grown and grown and grown um, so now that you know we have a a trading desk we have an exchange um, we raised $100 million uh, last quarter or the end of 2021, um, and we're using that for global expansion. And it's all based on this idea that we're helping the best projects succeed, and we're trying to do it in a compliant way. So I love, I love being at CoinList, uh, and, and and I love the mission statement of CoinList um you know when i was at the commission and really working with with michael and mayor joe and others we were trying to figure out like how do you allow things you know to move forward in in a good way um be innovative but also think about things like consumer protection and i feel like coinless is exactly that um and then just generally when i left the commission i started you know thinking about what's not happening in this industry in fintech generally and, it, and honestly it was just Regulators unable to talk to the entrepreneurs, unable to to understand where they were coming from, and vice versa. And so, I'm hopeful that I'm a little bit of a bridge there, um, and that's that's kind of my career goal, anyway.
2: Uh, you know, Michael, we talked a little bit about uh, your background up top, but you know, your practice in the digital asset space, I'm sure, has evolved with the clients you've worked with over the past few years. Any war stories you can share, or maybe talk a little bit about that progression?
4: Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. And as Carla alluded to, uh, I've been thinking about crypto and crypto regulation since about 2013, when the SEC first started trying to wrap its arms around, gosh, what is this Bitcoin? What do we need to be thinking about? Um, And the evolution as uh, it learned about more and more digital assets and distributed ledger technology and its potential implications for consumers, for investors, for markets. Since I've been in private practice at Quinn Emanuel for about five years, a decent chunk of my practice has always constituted working with various digital asset platforms. And there has been an evolution. Uh, starting in 2017, 2018, a lot of the uh, action was around ICOs. And you saw as uh, various platforms struggled to figure out the right way to do some kind of an offering. Was, was it through a, a Reg D, a Reg A, or a Reg S offering? Was it to take the position that the assets weren't securities? And so there is no need to comply with those regulations through the through a utility token and grappling with those issues. As the space has evolved, you see more and more digital asset platforms are focusing on decentralization and trying to figure out how do they raise money early stage, be still yet connected to a token. And then when they launch, they launch as near as you can to a decentralized state that obviously poses uh, its own challenges um the phrase i'm using these days is you know there's no such thing as the virgin birth of a token except for maybe bitcoin um and so somebody's got to be behind these platforms uh and and how do you advise uh, compliance with uh, the federal securities laws and other regulations and then what we're seeing more and more as our practice has evolved from a pure regulatory defense maybe sec actions and others investigations to a counseling role where Companies are recognizing that they need to get this stuff right at the beginning rather than wait for uh, defending themselves when it's sometimes too late. So we increasingly are doing more and more upfront counseling and, and helping uh, digital asset players, uh, layer ones, exchanges, etc., structure their business in a way that uh, attempts to comply with the various regulations. And there's the challenge, right? And then I think we're going to get into it is – It's a very hard area to advise because I've been very outspoken and others have been as well that the SEC and other agencies have not provided sufficient guidelines or or, um, guardrails as to how to conduct other than, you know, essentially a we'll let you know when we see it type of approach. Um, And it's worth mentioning that the other uh, area that emerges in this space is uh, more increasingly more private civil litigation. Um, So as uh, the SEC has brought more and more cases, uh, you're starting to see the plaintiff's bar realize that there is essentially a follow on action that they can bring for any unregistered securities offering. And so uh, there are more and more um, class actions being brought both in the Southern District of New York, in California, elsewhere. And we're very uh, heavily involved in defending uh, several of those cases.
2: You know, as we mentioned up at the top of this episode, Kurt, we want to dig into the Executive Order on Ensuring Responsible Development of Digital Assets, or as no one in the market has called it, the EOERDDA. Uh, I think, Michael, you did a great job of just doing the background on some of the regulatory landscape for digital assets over the past few years. Uh, Carla, I'm interested in, in your, your perspective from that in-house seat. Uh, do you think that there's a, a different take on the regulatory view from your position?
3: No, I mean, it's so challenging for us. And and Michael laid it out beautifully. Uh, You know, here in the US, we as exchanges, we have the federal scheme to worry about. Right. So we have certainly FinCEN and and the IRS and the SEC and the CFTC, um, the CFPB even, but it, it bears emphasizing that we also have a myriad of state regulations and rules that we have to comply with right and all of those are different and and it's really challenging sometimes to make sure that you are walking the line across all of those different types of regulatory schemes and sometimes like with New York they are actually harder than the federal schemes are so um you know i think that we need to pay attention to that too and and Also, you know, we are very much focused here on the U.S. and the executive order is about the U.S., but as an exchange and considering this technology, it's an international focus, right? And and this technology does not believe in borders. (laughs) So we have to certainly pay attention to, to what's going on here, but it doesn't mean that we can let our guard down everywhere else either.
1: Thanks, Michael, and thanks, Carla, for setting the scene a little bit. I think with that context, we can go ahead and and jump in and talk a little bit about President Biden's recent executive order. The backdrop, and these are my words, certainly not language in the executive order, is that the digital assets and cryptocurrency industry has for years existed in kind of a regulatory gray space. But the industry has gotten so large that the government needs to decide whether and how it wants to regulate the space. To that end, the executive order calls on a host of federal agencies to collaborate on a unified approach to regulation and oversight of digital assets. According to a White House fact sheet that describes the order, President Biden's directive is, quote, the first ever whole-of-government approach to addressing the risks and harnessing the potential benefits of digital assets and their underlying technology, end quote. The order sets out six key priorities. First, consumer and investor protection. Second, financial stability. Third, illicit finance. Fourth, US leadership in the global financial system and economic competitiveness. Fifth, financial inclusion. And sixth, responsible innovation. To develop a unified approach in those areas, the order directs various agencies to assess risks, prepare reports, and develop policy recommendations. There are a lot of different takes on the order. Uh, for example, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution called it, quote, more of a call to action than a specific game plan, end quote. Uh We won't offer our views on it. That's what our guests are here for. So, Carla, let's come back to you. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about some of the details in in a minute, but high level, uh, how would you describe the order? I mean, is this a research project or is this a regulatory reformation?
3: Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, I'm personally cautiously optimistic. I think the industry has differing views, but You know, to me, it's a statement piece, right? We're recognizing finally at the presidential level that there is a legitimate asset class here. There's a market base that the government should and must pay attention to. A good friend of mine likes to say that you can't put technology in a box once it's out, you know, it's it's just gonna flourish. And so that's the executive order to me is is kind of recognizing that maybe in a a big way, the biggest way uh, for the first time. And so as we start to move forward, I I think we're not gonna look back. So all of that is very positive. Some things I'll note about the fact sheet, you know, it starts talking about the things that you already put in buckets, like protection for consumers in the financial system, security and climate change. And those are first, right? And then it mentions a little bit about, you know, benefits and and innovation. But to me, that's instructive. If we're, what we're looking for, you know, in this executive order is like, how do we protect people? How do we we protect um, the people that are going to use this technology? And then also, it, it struck me when you're looking at this information that, um it's really about you know how can this technology benefit the us and not necessarily the industry itself mm-hmm. um so uh, you know uh, looking at all of that you know uh, together i think really it's about do do we want like who do we want to regulate in this space and then how does the us adopt this technology because i think there's some recognition now that that they need to
1: yeah that's interesting i, I was actually talking to a friend who is a practitioner in canada and does some work in the space and he was saying it's going to be crazy if we start to see things coming out of the U.S. that are entirely U.S. centric. You know, you need to play ball with the rest of the world because we're doing this stuff, too. And, and crypto just sort of doesn't, you know, doesn't honor uh, national boundaries. Right. It's, it's sort of everywhere at the same time. Uh, so it's interesting that this is kind of a U.S. focused order. Uh, but with that, sorry, I'm, I'm stealing everyone's thunder. Michael, I'd like to get your take sort of high level. What do you what do you make of this order?
4: Yeah, I mean, I would agree with how Carla described it. It is an, a significant first step. Uh, a lot of us who have been dealing on the regulatory side for some time now have been clamoring for clarity for a whole government approach, not just leaving it up to which agency can be the most aggressive at any given time to own the space. So it would be the height of cynicism to turn around and criticize um, the executive order uh, up front. I'll do that maybe towards the end. Uh, but I, I do think that. It is a recognition that this is a, a there's a really wide waterfront to cover the executive order tries to do that. I think uh, you know the the topics that you listed uh, there Kurt is fairly well encompasses almost anything you could think about. The question is whether the government really can execute on the broad mandate that the president set out for it. Can it really wrap its arms around all of these aspects at the same time? Um, but I do think it is a, a, for an important step, particularly, as, as Carlos mentioned, given the international aspect of crypto. What you are seeing in the space now is the lack of certainty and predictability in the U.S. is leading lots of projects to just simply deliberately stay offshore. Um, there, are, there are many projects where if you go to their website, it'll say, sorry, you're in the U.S., you can't access this project. That's actually a very sound regulatory approach right now. Don't participate in the U.S. because it's unpredictable what will happen. But obviously, we have the strongest and deepest capital markets in the world, and we should not be uh, excluding this novel, innovative asset class on that basis. So if this allows the government to signal, we're here, we're going to roll up our sleeves, we're going to grapple with it, and we recognize we've got to bring more clarity to the space, I think that's a good thing.
3: Yeah, I totally agree. But all that said, I don't think that there's going to be regulatory reformation anytime soon, right? Like um I was at a payments conference recently and and there was a lot of regulatory and um, representatives there and they were like we don't really understand what what the what a national CBDC is trying to solve. And so the executive order, you know, is assuming that there should be a CBDC. When you have people in an agency that don't have the same assumptions that this executive order is kind of like putting out there. It's clear to me that it's gonna be really hard to get anybody to kind of have one view in one agency, but certainly across all the different agencies. So I think we're going to, to just be subject to a lot of different proposals and rulemakings in the hopes that in 10 years, we all have one view.
2: Yeah, Carly, you hit on a note, and and Kurt, you brought it up as well. There's going to be a considerable amount of coordination and cooperation due to this executive order across regulatory agencies and that uh, whole government approach. Uh, That said, I think I have a little bit of a confession to make. Um, Kurt and I sometimes assign each other difficult segments of our podcast episodes based on side bets. And since his Richmond Spiders are this year's Atlantic 10's men's basketball champions, And my St. Bonaventure Bonnies didn't even make the weekend in that tournament. It's on me to list the agencies and government (laughs) officials named in that executive order. Those are in no particular order. The Secretary of State, the Secretary of Treasury, the Secretary of Defense, the Attorney General, the Secretary of Commerce, Secretary of Labor, Secretary of Energy, the Secretary of Homeland Security, the Administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, the Director of the Office of Management and Budget, the Director of National Intelligence, the Director of the Domestic Policy Council, the Chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, the Director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy, the Administration of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, the Director of the National Science Foundation, the Administration of the United States Agency for International Development, representatives of the Fed, the CFBC, the FTC, the SEC, the CFTC, the FDIC, and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Yes. That's a lot. All right, now back to the regular <clears> thing. <throat> <That's> a lot. <laughs> uh, if you could still see me, Kurt, I did not pass out.
0: <clears throat> yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, it is on me to list the agencies and government officials named in the executive order. Those are the Secretary of State, the Secretary of the Treasury, the Secretary of Defense, the Attorney General, the Secretary of Commerce, the Secretary of Labor. The secretary of energy the secretary of homeland security the administrator of the environmental protection agency the director of the office of management and budget the director of national intelligence the director of the domestic policy council the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, the director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy, the administration of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, the director of the National Science Foundation, the administration of the United States Agency for International Development, and representatives of the Fed, the CFPB, the FTC, the SEC, the CFTC, the FDIC, and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Michael, in your background, you've had experience in this kind of cross-agency collaborative body. As noted, you were Chair White's deputy to the Financial Stability Oversight Council, or the FSOC, which was created by the Dodd-Frank Act and brings together representatives of Treasury, the Fed, OCC, CFPB, SEC, FDIC, and CFTC, among others, for the purpose of monitoring certain risks to the U.S. financial sector. Based on your experience, how confident are you, Michael, that this laundry list of U.S. government agencies will be able to work together effectively on digital assets executive orders?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the key question to all of this, Chris. That laundry list that you impressively uh, read is really quite something. I think a better question is what agencies are not included, uh, and, and, and it's probably a, a shorter list. But if we were to focus for a moment just on the financial regulators, as opposed to ones that have to do with, you know, say, uh, national security, like the Department of Homeland Security or defense, which really are, are sort of a, a separate conversation. Um, the FSOC, I think, started from an admirable place, which is to say these agencies need to talk to each other. They need to coordinate as risks to the financial stability in the United States emerge. And it came out of Dodd-Frank because Uh, these agencies, a lot of them were caught flat-footed during the 2007-2008 financial crisis. Um, I experienced FSOC in all of its uh, glory and all of its, uh, uh, I guess I would call it maybe sort of the the seedy underbelly uh, of the government, (laughs) as you see that at the end of the day, agencies can be quite turfy. uh, And what matters most is uh, if you are treading in someone's space, they don't like it. Um, The Functions at its best, in my opinion, when it is truly focused on financial stability risk. So there were moments um, where, where I was working for Chair White, where we saw FSOC function very well. So, for example, uh, around Brexit, uh, there was a devaluation of the WAN that happened. Big global events that have impact uh, on uh, financial stability. Seeing those agencies come together, share information get on calls, have planning, have plans in place as to how they're going to deal with it. That's where they do well. What I don't think FSOC does as well is when you take 10 regulators, you put them in a room and you say, now be a regulator. And part of the challenge that is it, it's led by the Department of Treasury, which is a lot of things, but it is not really a regulator. It sets mm-hmm. policy, uh, it prints dollars, it collects your taxes, but it's not really experienced in writing rules. And so when it is trying to figure out how to regulate a particular space, uh, it can sometimes it's inexperience in that area can show. So I was working with FSOC on uh, the, the asset management study, which became sort of quite um, a significant, uh, I don't want to call it a fight, but it became quite a, quite a significant event in the life of FSOC in the life of the SEC for sure. In that um, discussion, what, what we learned at the SEC is that lots of other agencies had opinions about how the asset management industry should be regulated. The SEC's perspective in all this is uh, they are the regulator of, of first resort. Uh, they've been regulating the asset management industry since 1940, and so their expertise should be deferred to. Um, but yet they had to play ball with some of the other agencies. So you had an asset management study that emerged, and then you had a regulatory plan uh, also emerged where the SEC undertook a, a bunch of rulemakings um, to try to address some of the concerns. So that's that's the history. What can uh, FSOC do in digital asset space? I think, you know, it remains to be seen whether they can come together to address the global potential financial stability risks, or does it revert to uh, essentially a turf battle? Obviously, Chair Gensler has been very outspoken uh, and very aggressive in trying to carve out a significant chunk. Uh, of the digital asset space, but you also see the chair of the CFTC raising his hand frequently and often, even going to his committee of jurisdiction saying, I need more authority. Uh, he says the CFTC should regulate the cash uh, spot market for digital assets. That would run in, you know, nobody's really said this directly, but it would run in direct contra- you know, conflict with what the SEC is trying to do in regulating uh, digital assets. So it remains to be seen whether the FSOC uh, becomes basically, uh, you know, a, a turf battle or whether they can uh, rise above that and try to figure out the more, you know, global challenging policy issues.
2: Yeah, Carla, as someone who may be subject to some or all of those regulators at CoinList, do you agree with Michael that there's going to be this kind of um, land grab between the, the, the regulators themselves? Or do you, do you see maybe a rosier picture?
3: No, I think it is entirely in grab. And I think that, you know, Chairman Gensler has kind of put the stake in the ground because no one else has has wanted to take it, honestly, or felt, you know, impassioned to take it. Um, But this executive order gives them a platform now, right, to actually ask for more jurisdiction. And so we'll probably see some fights between the Ag Committee and Senate Banking. Um, going on about you know who should have jurisdiction here. Can I can I come back to something that Michael said about FSOC, though? Do you think that they are going to name one of the stable coins as systemically important? And like, do you think you know I, as I understand it, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but there there isn't actually any anything else named right now, right? There was always the litigation, and so everybody's just kind of fallen from the wayside. So it would be the only the digital asset space that's really subject to to this designation. Is that right?
4: Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, FSOC's work uh, during the Obama administration was to name particular companies for designation as systemically important. There are what they call the, the GSIBs, that the largest banks remain designated and, and they can't, based on their size, ever get out from under that. And so they're subject to heightened scrutiny by their regulators, the Fed, the FDIC, and the OCC. But there were designations for, uh, let's see, uh, there was AIG, there was Prudential, uh, there was MetLife. Um, all of those have been undone for one reason or another. A GE, actually, at one point uh, was also designated. All of those have been undone, uh, either through litigation or because a later version of the FSOC determined to undesignate them. So I think you're absolutely right. Um, one of the things that came up a few years ago when FSOC was looking at the asset management space is do you designate entities like an AIG or a MetLife, or can you designate activities um, such as asset management, I think what FSOC will be grappling with here is, could they designate an asset class, stable coins, as systemically important rather than going after one uh, stable you know particular coin or, or another? And I think one of the things that I learned uh, that that is sort of worth bearing repeating, and, and I also think it's something that the folks who work on FsOC need to remember is when you're talking about the financial stability of the United States, it's the law of very large numbers. Um so uh I believe I I I could be wrong about this but my memory is that MetLife when it was designated had something like 90 million policyholders life insurance policyholders which is you know not quite a third of the country but it's a very significant number so you can see that there's a, there's a lot there. I'm not sure that any particular token other than you know ev- even Bitcoin that rises to the type of numbers where you can actually impact financial stability. Um, I I do think as an asset class, when you're talking about trillions of dollars across the asset class, that's significant. But as we all know who follow the space, you know, it's not likely that any one event would take all of them down, even though they tend to move uh, roughly in tandem. But I don't know that there'd be any one stable coin out there that is big enough to pose a risk to financial stability.
3: So, do you think that they might do it by asset class then, like all stable coins? Would that be revisited, or is that a likelihood?
4: That's what I think they'll be grappling with, and I, I think that they will realize that if they uh, start to cherry pick whether it's a stable coin or whether it's uh, Bitcoin or Ether, you go to any particular coin, it just won't. It just won't. Right. It won't be credible to say that um, you know anything that happens to this particular asset could actually pose a risk to financial stability. So I do think an asset class based approach is something they'll uh, be looking at and whether that's because, as you said, maybe there's sort of already momentum behind a CBDC without that discussion even happening, right? Is this something that should happen? It's almost like, well, now that it's happening, let's think about it. So does it try to say, well, if there's going to be a CBDC, there should not be other types of stable coins out there? Or what is the function of other stable coins and what, do they, what risks do they pose to a, a CBDC? And then the other question could be, are there activities, going, coming back to activities, that tokens engage in or that digital asset platforms engage in that systemically cause uh, concern, uh, whether it's uh, the, the flow of funds uh, or or the, uh, like I said earlier, the, the anecdotal evidence that they tend to move in tandem uh, as an asset class? Is, or is that something that would be of concern to FSOC? I will say one of the things that I think folks in the industry need to be thinking about is the right way to approach FSOC. Um, Again, one of the things that I experienced is you have a lot of regulators with a lot of deep expertise in their particular area, but that doesn't mean you have people who are deeply expertise about digital assets or stable coins or digital exchanges. And so I think the industry needs to figure out the best way to educate FSOC because um as chris mentioned i was on the deputies committee which is essentially a designee by the principal of the agency they we used to get in a room every two weeks uh in a conference room in the treasury building uh and talk about stuff and i might bring my particular uh, expertise and perspective and my colleagues at the other agencies did as well but it doesn't mean that we're all experts in everything and so the more education i think the industry can bring to bear and get in front of fsoc and explain to them you know, both the big picture and the nuances behind all of it and the challenges that the people like you, Carla, are facing as you're trying to run a compliant business. And where are where is the friction in the joints and making them really focus on that point as opposed to, um, you know, what they might be sort of more, you know, reading in pop culture, uh, making sure they're really well informed about the facts, uh, the current state of play uh, and the business challenges that you all face.
2: Just two quick points of clarification before we move on. We've been using the term CBDC for those who may not be practicing in this space or interested in more. That is a central bank digital currency. Uh, I'm sure Kurt we can have a whole episode on CBDCs generally but if you're interested in reading up more on that. Uh, second point of clarification Carla if you want to be our guest podcast host anytime you may interview any of our guests whatever Kurt needs to tap out I'd be happy
3: I'm to actually just getting free legal advice from Michael you know this is all this is about it really has nothing to do with the podcast.
2: Anybody who's has a concern with that please listen to the very
1: long and quickly
2: spoken disclaimer at the end of this so. <laughs>
1: This is this is like the third episode in a row, Chris, where you have uh, offered um, to replace me with one of our guests. I think it means we have uh, awesome guests. I'm, an, I'm gonna.
3: I'd <laughs> be, be worried if I were you, Kurt. <laughs> the
1: two-year itch, Kurt.
2: I got the two-year itch here. I don't know if it's gonna keep
1: working out. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, okay, so so we've got this long list of people coming together, but let's just think about about the FSOC in particular, and they're going to be sharing their expertise and and talking about potentially ways to move forward with rules or regulations or potentially designations in this in this space. Uh it, it seems like something is going to happen here. Maybe it won't be as unified as President Biden would like. Uh, maybe some of the agencies decide to go it uh, go it on their own. But I think something's going to happen. And <clears throat> Brett Harrison, who is the president of FTX US, sort of alluded to this in an interview with Neil Cavuto on Fox uh, just days after this executive order was released. And here's what he had to say, Um, quote, some amount of regulation is important to allow institutions to come in and feel confident in being able to put their money into this emerging space, end quote. I think what he was imagining is that if we can end up with a regulatory framework where institutional investors feel comfortable, that more money will start to come into digital assets or into the cryptocurrency space. But I think at the core of that is this notion that some amount of regulation is is important, uh, and so my question for you, Carla, let's get the in-house perspective. Uh, do you agree
4: with that? I
3: mean, absolutely. I mean I don't want it to go unnoticed that there is regulation in this space, right? The, I think Mr. Harrison's probably saying that there's no overarching scheme, and he's right about that, but there's regulations. the CFTC has regulation over, or has regulatory authority over the spot commodities markets, and that's what most of the u s exchanges operate under. Um, for manipulation and fraud and that type of thing, lots of states involvements there for money transmitters. you know, and then also I think there's already you know a lot of institutional money in the space is you know people are adopting it more and more, especially on the the more um, I guess tried and true type of assets, uh, Bitcoin and others. But all that being said, I agree that more clarity is going to bring you know more legitimate, players into the market, bigger, bigger, bigger dollars. And that's going to be better for everybody. So, yeah, I, I think we do want some regulation. The trick is the balance, right? So we have so many projects that come into CoinList um, and, and growing their communities and, and their users is so important. How do you put regulation in a, around these these sometimes very start to be very tiny teams so that there's this idea of, OK, this is regulated. This is protected. You can feel safe about transacting or, or being on this platform without actually killing the, the idea of the project and killing the technology altogether. And, 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 I, and I don't know the answer to that, but that that is the challenge and the balance that you kind of have to, to strike.
1: At, at some point, is it too much, right? If we've got you know the CFP, the CFPB, and the FTC, and the SEC, and the CFTC, and the FDIC, and they're all coming in and potentially putting out their own guidance or rules, when when is it too much regulation?
3: It's too much right now because there's no clarity, right? I have to kind of always figure out, you know, am I more in the CS- SEC space? Am I more in the CFTC space? Which space am I in, or you know, do I just want to jump shore altogether? Um, yeah, there's too much right now because it's so unclear. I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to be operating under, um, in my perfect world. And, you know, we might get to this later, but in my perfect world, it's the CFTC that kind of takes hold of this area. We already operate under their regime. I think, you know, they've been very intentional and deliberate about the enforcement actions they're bringing for just, you know, very egregious contact, uh, type of activities and you know michael maybe has a different view, or or i'd like to hear his view on that um but they feel like an agency that we in the industry could work with so even if it's some kind of like light touch registration regime for the cftc i'd love to see that happen and again it's not that we oppose regulation but the way that it's happening right now isn't working
1: michael what's your reaction to that or what's your view on kind of getting the right touch from a regulatory standpoint
4: yeah i mean that the challenges that Carla is describing obviously are not unique to her business. It's something that we hear across our client base. Chair Gensler came out this fall in in a, a at an event of securities professionals, SEC enforcement lawyers, and, and criticized the SEC defense bar by saying, you know, do not enable. Uh, these various platforms to exist outside of the regulatory regime. You should be counseling companies to come in. You should be counseling companies to come in and talk to us, and they need to come in and register, and then everything will be hunky-dory. Um, I, I don't think that was a very fair criticism to level against the bar, but I also think it's not recognizing the challenges that Carl is talking about that we hear from lots of participants in the market. They are they're clamoring for clarity. I, I don't think you know, market participants are looking for sort of an exhaustively, overly constrictive regulatory regime. But at the same time, I can't think of a client who says, "I think this should be completely unregulated. I should be beholden to nobody, um, and and there is no role for regulation." That, that's not what's going on. Um, what you have are businesses that have really novel, exciting projects that want to do things the right way and and would like that, but they need to know who their regulator is what the expectations are where are the lines in which they're operating and Carla mentioned that the startup culture if you want to start up a social media company you can do it tomorrow in your basement and as we're obviously learning social media can be extremely harmful uh, in, in some cases um, and there's no regulation o- over that but yet you know the the, the, the pro- promise of digital assets, uh, from a, whether it's financial inclusion or speeding payment rails um, or, or any number of uh, potential areas is enormous. And yes, it's, it involves money at its base. So it does need to be regulated, but the regulation needs to be sort of within the context that allows these companies to flourish and grow. Um, you know, I, I should add, you know, we talked a little bit about FSOC and it has to do a study. Um, I didn't actually count up uh, in the order how many studies are called for but it's a lot and it's overlapping. Um, There is another piece of the executive order, I think it's section 5B, that says that the secretary of the treasury in consultation with the secretary of labor and the head of other relevant agencies, including the FTC, the SEC, the CFTC, the federal banking agencies and the CFEB, shall create a report on the implications uh, of digital assets on financial markets and payment system infrastructure for consumers, investors, businesses, and equitable growth. So a small topic, uh, that should be a very easy report for them to write. Uh, and they have, and they have six months to do it and the government will have no problem hitting that mark. Um, but you know, what are they going to do with all these reports? Who's reading them and then decides what to do with all of these reports? I mean, that's sort of the, uh, the next question. And obviously we haven't, we haven't touched it all on, uh, you know, the other branch of government that's out there, which is Congress. I mean, to, to Carla's point, you know, this is the executive branch trying to move the needle. But is the answer uh, executive uh, regulation or is it a legislative solution where Congress steps in and defines digital assets into various buckets and decides if you're doing this type of activity, you're regulated this way. If you're doing another type of activity, you're regulated that way. Or as you know, there's been plenty of chatter. You stand up a new regulator. You, You come up with a statutory definition for a digital asset and you build a ground up regulatory regime for for trading, for exchanges, for issuance. That accounts for what these things are rather than trying to shoehorn uh, these novel uh, asset classes into you know what are very uh, in, in a lot of cases, very old regulatory regimes that just sort of don't work on their face.
3: yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, it will be interesting to see how this executive order is used, especially as the election is coming up, right? I wonder, you know, will Congress be using it to kind of go against the administration? Will that get traction? What, what impact will that have on the different agencies, if any? And then this idea of having a, you know our own SRO or our own regulator, I love, but so many people hate it, Michael. So I wonder, you know, are you hearing the same or not? Like I'd even love an SRO that sat underneath the SEC and the CFTC as kind of joint jurisdiction, that would be fine. Somebody that really understood this asset class is what's needed. I can't get any traction whatsoever.
4: Well, it's it's certainly easier to use existing regulators than it is to stand up a new regulator, and so the you know I, I'm sure the the backlash on that comes both from those within who, who work at the government and say no 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 we we've got this right you've heard the SEC says oh no 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 there's a case from 1946 called the Howey test. It's perfect. It works perfectly on digital (laughs) assets. It's it's very simple. Um, (laughs) And then you also have, you know, I'm sure those within the industry that sort of say like, well, this is a devil you know, type situation, you stand up a new regulator, what's that going to mean? There's not a lot of history to look back on in terms of new regulators being stood up. You do look at the CFPB. um, That's a new regulator following Dodd-Frank. Um, I, I'm not in a position to sort of judge the CB, CFPB's effectiveness or not. Um, there's been a lot of challenges to its structure uh, that that have come and spent a lot of time just sort of litigating its own sort of right to exist. Um, but I, I actually, quite frankly, I I agree with you. I I'm in favor of a of a either a new regulator or a good point an SRO that is sort of jointly overseen by the SEC, the CFTC, and I think I think the the role for legislation could simply be to define things. So to the extent that the dynamic in Congress is the last thing that Congress wants to do is create a new agency that requires new funding uh, that will take years to to roll out new rules. You could legislatively define things and make it clear who the regulator is for which activities, for which asset classes. Um, And I don't think it would be all that challenging to create legislation that defines a digital asset in a way that allows them to be uh, issued and traded without running afoul of uh, all of the federal securities laws.
3: I think we found our new careers, Michael. We're going to stand up this new regulatory agency.
4: Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> it. That's right. Breaking news on the InSecurities podcast. <laughs> That's what we love. Yeah, my, my phone has not been ringing off the hook seeking uh, my input on this question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it will soon. It will soon. As soon as this airs. All right, Michael, you mentioned a moment ago that the, uh, the executive order calls for a bunch of reports, and I think, um, Carla, you spoke earlier about some of the deadlines that are being imposed. Uh, they're, all, they're all over the board. Some things you have 180 days, some things you've got up to a year. In any event, I think the deadlines are a little tighter than what might be reasonable. Um, I, I guess my big question is, after, after all the reports have been submitted— Um, What do you think, Carla, what do you think will be the outcome? What is the upshot of this executive order?
3: Yeah, I'll just comment on your 180 days. It's funny because in crypto land, 180 days is like forever forever. Um, and so you're just like, this seems really aggressive. And so it's it's a, it's kind of interesting just to hear the two views because everybody's like, What's gonna take them six months to look at um in my world, right? every day? And I just realized one hundred and eighty <laughs> days is nothing in in regulatory land at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially when you're talking about these really large, I mean Michael read the one topic, and I was like, I mean, oh my gosh, it's going to take forever, and then you have all these different agencies come together or try to come together it's going to be really challenging in 180 days. So, um, yeah, I just think it's going to I think we touched on a little bit. I think that the executive order is going to culminate in some pushes for rulemakings. I think we're going to be looking at a ton of proposals coming out of this, probably for the next, you know, I don't know, five years, even something like that. I think that really to move in the space, um, we're going to need legislative action. But I think they might use the executive order and the studies that come out of it to help inform them to do that um and that's what i'm hopeful for actually uh, you know these are going to be heavy on consumer protection but, you know it's it's very very clear and so if we want this industry to kind of continue on in the us i think legislative action is going to have to move for that um, and then i'm i'm just curious to see what does happen around the us issued cbdc um and then also the uh, you know whether fsoc particularly is going to designate that stable coin activity in general or or usdc or one of the stable coins as something that's systemically important um, I find all of those super fascinating and something that that could be real.
1: What do you think, Michael? Are we going to get uh, speeches and policy pronouncements, or uh, or is this all going to lead to some kind of legislation or regulation at the agencies?
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It's, it's sort of an exciting time in the industry in general, but particularly with this uh, executive order now forcing agencies to focus in on it, um, those reports... I'm gonna I'm gonna guess here. I'm gonna break the story, Chris. They're not coming out in 180 days. That's my prediction. Oh, that's my prediction. I sounded
2: so confident earlier.
4: <laughs> um, having seen what it takes to create these, that's uh, that's mission impossible. But I think <laughs> right. I think w- what the if the agencies think about this process and how they can be most effective, the most effective reports are going to be ones that have specific, granular, and operationalizable recommendations. So. We saw before this EO came out, there was the president's working group came out and did its own report on uh, stable coins, and that's the Treasury, the SEC, the CFTC, and a couple other agencies. And their recommendation was essentially Congress should look at it, FSOC should look at it, we should all think about it. If that's what these reports say, is essentially they are reports saying people need to think more about it, or you know XYZ agency should think about regulation, I don't think this exercise winds up being very meaningful. But if the agencies actually say, how do we actually solve the problem that's been put in front of us in a thoughtful way? And so the report is more of a uh, an outline or a pathway, a prescription for action. Then I think you could see something moving forward, whether it's, OK, here's the rule that this agency will write on this particular topic. Or here is something that a congressperson could pick up and run with as they're thinking about legislation to say, well, look, we've read this report And if I'm crafting uh, legislation, I need to think about, you know, navigating the channels in this particular way. Um, So we'll know more as these reports kind of sort of roll off the presses, uh, so to speak. Um, And to Carla's point, you know, the challenge is not just the inner workings of government getting them done quickly, but this is a space that evolves so quickly. If I think about the work that I'm doing now, the conversations I have with our clients now in terms of what the emergent issues are, Versus what we were talking about six months ago, or a year ago, it's incredibly different, incredibly different set of issues. As web three continues to evolve and the technology evolves and how people are thinking about it, the conversation could be totally different by the time these reports come out. So that's something else that the regulators are going to have to grapple with is, is staying current and staying relevant.
2: I think you both are being way too measured and practical in your expectations. Uh, So I want to kind of get both of your takes. Uh, Carla, we'll we'll go to you first. What's your ideal outcome from this executive order, uh, you know, with these reports or or regulation? You know, what do you hope for? What do you think is the best uh, the best potential?
3: Yeah. And I mean, I think I pretty much already said it is I would love one regulatory scheme. I would love it for it to be the CFTC in in the perfect world. It would be a regulator that really a, a whole separate regulator that really understood the digital asset space. That's not happening. Um, but that would be my, my ideal Until outcome. that
2: phone rings.
3: <laughs> Until Michael sets it up. It's not happening. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Michael, same for you. Are, are you being the uh, the czar of the SRO over uh, digital assets? Is that your ideal outcome, or, or do you see some uh, some wiggle room
4: here? Woe to that person! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> talk about uh, you know a, a, ch- a challenging job. Um, I, I wonder if it, that's where it heads to—is sort of almost a you know a, a crypto czar, a digital asset czar who has to sort of drive this. Um, but I do think. I agree with Carla. I think it's a legislative solution that ultimately solves this, not a regulatory, not an executive branch uh, solution. And perhaps that's really the ideal outcome of these studies is simply shining a big enough spotlight on it that it almost shines a spotlight on the problem. You can't have 15 different agencies agree on how to regulate an incredibly complex space. Recognize this really is novel uh, and it's something that is new that requires its own uh legislation again to sort of bring it back to i mentioned social media before you talk about uh the internet and there's a lot of um discussion about the statutes that protect internet providers and content providers from being sued that was obviously bespoke legislation that came out years and years ago to allow that space to try to flourish and you know now many years later people are questioning the wisdom of that that's that's all sort of makes sense as an evolution so uh, is it the same type of situation can the government whether it's the legislative branch or the executive branch recognize that it's it's time for everyone to sort of sharpen their pencils and think about how to deal with this um, as a uh, new asset class and as a new space in our economy um, and, and not just try to shoehorn it into existing frameworks.
3: And Michael, do you think that by coming together and, and really talking about this in an intentional way, that it will actually push some of the agencies to get ahead of the game and start making rule proposals? Like I could see because there is that kind of like tension for jurisdiction, the SEC particularly being aggressive and like going ahead and just throwing something out there if they know the Fed or somebody else is going to do something that they don't like, for example.
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what happened with the asset management study is that the, the program of rule makings was in part recognition that if the SEC didn't act and propose some rulemakings, somebody else was going to act for them. In other words, an FSOC study that really sort of criticized some some regulatory gaps in the regime. So I think you're right that a lot of the agencies, this will be a moment for them to focus and kind of realize, well, we need to show that we're doing something here. And so I'm sure, does it push the SEC to rulemaking? Probably. CFTC, do they increase their push for, for statutory authority? probably. But what about some of the other agencies that have been quieter? Do they uh, start to look around and say, listen, if we're not being proactive, we're going to just get elbowed out of this space. And so we need to have our own thoughts on this. Um, Maybe that makes your job even harder.
1: Yay.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to thank both uh, Carla and Michael for coming on. We've really enjoyed the conversation. I think you've given regulators as well as those folks, listeners interested in this space, a lot to chew on. Uh, Any final thoughts? Uh, Carla, you first uh, before we sign off for the day.
3: Yeah, I mean, I just, I hope that regulators will will keep an open mind about, a true open mind, right? I think so many regulators have just kind of written this, this whole space off as fraud. Um, and, And when they do that, it means that they aren't, willing to put in protections for the people that aren't fraudsters. They're not actually helping consumers who are going to be in this space no matter if there's regulations or not. So I hope that that's the case um, with this executive order. And, and as we progress, this technology is not gonna move backwards. It's only gonna move forwards. Um, yeah.
2: Michael, parting parting wisdom for our listeners.
4: That, that was very well said. I will, uh, as I had done years ago, I will rely on uh, Carla's very excellent words.
2: Well, thank you both for joining us uh, this week. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guests, Carla Caravo of CoinList and Michael Liftick of CoinEmmanuel. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at Ekamov CPA. And I'm at enforce underscore update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see
1: you next time. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as host Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.